Hey, it's Matt Bowles. If you want to hang out with me in person, I'm going to be at the Latino Travel Fest in Elizabeth, New Jersey, May 31st to June 2nd. And I've got a 15% discount for you to join me. Just go to themaverickshow.com slash Latino. That's L-A-T-I-N-O. There you're going to see your 15% discounted ticket. There are going to be multiple guests from The Maverick Show attending, so you'll be able to hang out with all of us in person. You do not need to be Latino in order to attend Everyone is welcome. Again, get your discounted ticket at themaverickshow.com slash Latino. And as soon as you do, send me a DM on Instagram at Matt Bowles Maverick. Let me know that you're coming so that we can make plans to link up in person. And now here's a clip of what's coming up on today's episode. So it's completely off the books. No one really sees. It's very informal. No one knows these transfers that happen. The World Bank doesn't calculate it. And so if you have a company like PayPal or Venmo, you know, saying, hey, should we go into Africa? Let's do this data analysis. You crunch the numbers. The numbers aren't really there because they're all informal. But when you talk to the people, like, how are you moving money? It's there. So that's kind of the bet that we're playing on, which is we talk to people every day. We know what's happening on the ground and we have the tech and resources and connections. So let's just build this. It's Africa's time. This decade, upcoming decade is going to be huge. And yes, even if we are early, it's going to happen. most interesting real estate investors, entrepreneurs, and world travelers, and learn the strategies and tactics they use to succeed. And now, here's your host, Matt Bowles. Hey, everybody, it's Matt Bowles. Welcome to The Maverick Show. My guest today is Majid Mujalid. He is the co-founder and president of Chipper Cash, the no-fee African cross-border payment startup that has been likened to the African version of PayPal. Chipper Cash just raised a $2.4 million seed round from renowned investors in Silicon Valley, including Hall of Fame quarterback Joe Montana's fund after pitching the legendary football star directly. Born and raised in Accra, Ghana, Majid built Chipper Cash while traveling the world on the remote year program and... After launching in October 2018, Chipper Cash has already processed 500,000 transactions from more than 100,000 active users in its first nine months of operation alone. Majid has built his company with a location-independent infrastructure and can run his business from anywhere in the world. Majid, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Matt. This is really exciting, and I'm really happy to be here. It's so good to have you here, man. We got to set the scene. We are doing this interview in person in your hometown of Accra, Ghana, and it is an honor to be here, my friend. This just warms my heart. I mean, I just got here about three days ago, landed, you know, straight from San Francisco. And so to be able to do this interview in my hometown is just one of the biggest blessings. So 
Yeah. Cheers to you, brother. We're uh, Cheers, we're just man. we've just opened a bottle of South African Shiraz that we're going to be drinking through over the course of this episode, which is going to be an amazing conversation. And we should start with a little context of how you and I know each other. We've both done the remote year program. You and I have actually hung out in Colombia. We hung out in Buenos Aires, Argentina, and now we're hanging out in West Africa in your hometown of Accra, man. This is awesome. That's the, yeah. And when I met you back in Colombia, and it was just like, there's so much that I could learn from this guy. I remember we were sitting on the edge of that table. And I mean, yeah, just now that I hear that you are going to be here, this is exciting to see you. Well, it's awesome to see you, man. And your story since we met until now is an incredible, incredible entrepreneurial story that I really want to get into. But it's been, it's been so fun. You know, I've been here now in Accra for two weeks and I have been so enamored with this city. It has been I really, I mean, genuinely speaking, I mean, I've been to probably now almost 70 countries. And, you know, this is one of the cities where, I, you know, I just walked into it and I was immediately day after day, just completely enamored with the city. I mean, it's been, you know, everything from the restaurants that I've been to, the beach parties that I've been to, the nightlife. I mean, just how incredible friendly and wonderful the people are just you know walking along the street that you interact with i mean it has really really been a very special very heartwarming experience for me i am really glad to hear that so you know i you know left the country uh back when i was 16 and so i've always wondered you know, i got to see the country from you know an outside perspective in and I always wondered what it would be like for a foreigner who comes into a crowd, what is that perspective that they see? And so just hearing your experience firsthand, um, it's like, we've got a lot going for us here in Accra. And, you know, we, the world should notice it even more than it does now. So that's that's been, you know, exciting that you've had such an amazing experience so far. And I've been telling people about it and I will continue to tell people about it. It is one of my highest recommendations in Africa for sure. And one of my highest recommendations in the world as well, by extension. But, you know, it's a situation where oftentimes the best things that have happened here, I just wander into them by accident. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. I'm like wandering on the beach on a Sunday, right? On a Sunday afternoon, sit down on the beach, which by the way, are pristine clean, white sand, gorgeous beaches. The weather here every day has been perfect and amazing. And wandering on the beach, sit down, have a drink. And while you're chilling on the beach in the afternoon, more and more people start coming to the beach. And then the sun sets and you've literally got lines of, you know, restaurant after restaurant after restaurant, you know, bars slash restaurants. And they've all got their own DJs and their own sound systems, right? So you've got like, you know, I don't know how many restaurants there are, 20 or so in a row. And they've got DJs that are just bumping amazing music, right? I mean, most of it's Ghanaian music mixed in with reggae, some of it coming from Nigeria, some of it from the Caribbean. And, and just thousands of people come and congregate and have this unbelievable beach party. So by the time the sun goes down, which the sun sets here pretty early in this time of year, so maybe by 7 p.m., the sun is down and there are, I don't know, 5,000 people partying on the beach to these DJs. Yeah, it's just, that's just amazing. And for context, he's referring to Labadi Beach, which, you know, growing up here, that was the beach that I went to to just go swim in the ocean with the family. And just, you know, those two dynamics are just, just awesome. Yeah, it's amazing. And then the nightclubs have been absolutely incredible. 
amazing DJs. A bunch of them are outdoor venues, which is really, really cool. The yeah. weather is always amazing um, in Accra. It gets hot, but it's usually like, especially at nighttime, um, it's just perfect, you know, t-shirt weather. Yeah. And then you've got, you know, I love Indian food. It's one of the types of foods globally that I love. And so one of the things I did in Accra is I looked up, you know, Indian food. I roll into this Indian restaurant in Accra. It's called Heritage. If anybody comes, you should go to it. And it was literally, you know, outside of India and maybe outside of Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, some of the best Indian food I've ever had anywhere in the world. I was like, where is this? Chef is from Hyderabad, right? But they do it so perfectly. (laughs) I literally have been going there like three times a week. We just ordered a delivery order of like $150 worth of Indian food from this restaurant. Just stocked our fridge for the whole week. I mean, it's just amazing. So the Ghanaian food is fantastic, right? We've been to Buka. We've been to some of the local restaurants, but also the other international cuisine, yeah, it's on point. It's amazing. Um, like Ghana is definitely one of those gateway countries into Africa. And so we get a lot of foreigners come in, you know, to set up shops, set up business. It's super safe. And so there's definitely a huge rise of, you know, the international cuisine and all sorts of international businesses, really. Yeah, it's it's amazing just how, as you said, how safe it feels, how clean it is. And just it's it's I've been completely enamored in each day just having new experiences, which is I'm like, wow, this is incredible. So it's been an amazing two weeks and I'm definitely going to be you know telling everybody and recommending they come to Accra. Super glad to hear this. This, this really wants my heart. For sure, man. So, well, let's get into your journey a little bit, Major. You, you were born and raised here in Accra. And then what I want to ask you just to sort of start off with is to ask you about your entrepreneurial tendencies growing up. A lot of different people have different paths to getting into entrepreneurship. But as you were growing up, maybe you could talk a little bit about, you know, where you grew up. And also as you were coming up, you know, what were your entrepreneurial tendencies? Yeah. So I was born and raised right here in Accra, in Ghana. And I would say my whole life, I've definitely been on that, you know, a builder category. So I think probably the engineers among your audience, I'll probably relate more to them. You know, I would break toys and fix them and put them back. That's like the classic. Um, And I think the first time I ever sold something was actually in my middle school, which is literally a two minute drive from where we're recording this podcast right now. Um, I, my mother, you know, she worked at the, um, customs and so she had a bunch of candy that she'd bring home and these are mountains of candy like we cannot eat all in the family and so I'll take a whole bag of those to school and I had a friend and I'll you know I'll work with a friend and we'll just sell them to the students and and then would actually make money and it's like no way like this is like my mom did not know that we're doing this so I was basically you know stealing these candies and selling them um, and that, that was the first one we're in grade three grade four about the time um, and then then, you know, a couple of grades later, I think that was when Internet Cafes started becoming a thing right here in Accra. And so what we'll do is we'll go online and download these like Pokemon ROMs, put them on floppy disk drives and then sell them to the students because they didn't have access to Internet. It's like product arbitrage, basically. And and we had a whole list and catalog of all these games that you could get. I mean, these are people who cannot, you know, buy a Game Boy Advance, but they have a computer at home. And so, yeah, that was the second thing. And it was just, you know, reselling stuff that you download online. But isn't Accra totally legal? <laughs> so I've always been in the spectrum where, you know, just like building things. And then I think after going to high school, 
that was when I went on a high school exchange program in Michigan. So that was the first time that I finally got a chance to leave the country. And so in there, I basically loved just being in the U.S. I love snow. I love the cold. I was kind of tired of like the African heat and African sun. And so I loved the experience, came back home. I used to want to be a doctor because, you know, when you're in this part of the world, it's like you've got to be a doctor or a lawyer. That's like the thing. Um, but then after I, you know, went back to the United States for college, I went out to Grinnell College, Iowa. That was where, you know, my advisor at the time said, you, I wanted to take all sciences. And she was like, no, you cannot take all sciences. You have to be more liberal. And so I could only take one math class. And then I somehow stumbled upon, you know, this computer science program. My first job was at the help desk. And so it was literally the same thing where, you know, people come in, they're sick with their Macs and with their laptops and I fix it and they're happy and healthy again. And it's like, wait, I give people this feeling as if I was a doctor without going to school for eight years. So that was the transition into realizing that I could build things using technology. And that kind of kicked off, you know, actually building stuff. So I first of all got to ask you, my business partner, Valerie, is from Michigan. So I would be remiss if I didn't ask you where exactly in Michigan was your study abroad experience and what was that like for you? The high school, it was in North Muskegon. Okay. So it was right point on my hand doing the classic Michigan. Right. And yeah, I was the only like black kid in that school. And so this, you know, semi, you, you, like I represented an entire continent for many people who had never spoken to anyone from Africa, right? They asked you the questions, how did you get here? Did you swim? You know, like really, like, I wonder if they're joking or they're being serious, but a lot of them really didn't know. Um, and so, so getting that experience and realizing, you know, being the face of Africa kind of started at that age for, for a group of people. So that was exciting to see that, you know, you could, you know, spread the word about what's happening back home because people just don't know all they see is what's in the media, which most of it is not true. Um, and there is an amazing life, as you have just described um, right here. So. Yeah, it's uh, I mean, a cry is unbelievable. I'm still, I'm, I mean, we're all going to go out tonight. We had a whole crew about like eight people or so. We're going to be for dinner in a few hours and then hit the clubs after that. So it's just, uh, I mean, it's just my experience here is just snowballing and it just gets more amazing every day. But um, for you, okay, so you had that experience studying abroad here. And then what was the college transition like for you? And then after college, you know, what was your career trajectory like from there? Right. So in college, we, as I mentioned, studying computer science. So we, I always wanted to start a company, I mean, a product, but because you're a college student who is international, you can't actually do that. So we started a student group in the college where we sent, it was called Grinnell AppDev, and we basically made apps for the college and we got the college investor committee to, to invest in us. It was about 150 grand trained students. And so that was the beginning of building things. And then after college, this is actually where I met my co-founders for Chipper Cash. Um, and then after college, went out to join the Yahoo mobile team. This was when Yahoo was basically buying all sorts of mobile startups. So I, I worked on Yahoo Sports, Yahoo Mail, and then worked on Flickr. And then after that, Imager just raised about 40 million. Imager is a startup that, you know, you can watch all these memes and like just basically make your day better by just basically watching memes, um, which was amazing. And so I worked there on the mobile team as well for about three years. And um, it was in between Imager that I had this life, you know, where I had to basically leave the country uh, because the H-1B visa was a lottery. 
And even though Imager wanted me and I wanted to stay, there was no way to do it because random number, you know, generator about to decide your fate. And so from there, what happened? And maybe explain a little bit about that, you know, for people that aren't familiar with how that H-1B visa situation works. But, you know, how did that all go down? And then how did you respond to the outcome of that? What was your next move? Right. So the H-1B visa is essentially a work visa lottery. And there are only about 65,000 of these spots in the U.S. And an extra 20,000 if you have a master's degree. And I only had a bachelor's, so I was in the 65,000 spot. And essentially the company applies and you get selected and usually about 300, 400,000 applications. So, you know, it's basically six months and this is not just me, every single immigrant out there in the U.S. who's trying to get a visa goes through this where you have six months to a year of dread. You don't know if you're going to be selected and you start to think about your life out of the U.S., so on, in my case, it was looking at all the options. Should I go back to grad school? Can I start a company and get a visa through that? Basically all the options. And one of those options were, okay, maybe I cannot stay in the U.S. Let me do something like remote year. And so remote year was a plan B. And, and that, that was how I ended up deciding to do it. So I applied as a joke. It's just like, it's a plan B. But, you know, you know, fast forward that it was the best thing that ever happened. So I kept my job. I pitched Imager on doing something like remote year, traveling the world while still working for them. And then while they were doing that, they would also, you know, would try and figure out a way to bring me back in the country. And so I got to travel the world. We got to work with like really good lawyers. It was a lot of hard work, though. And then eventually I got to go back to the U.S. Well, I want to hear about the remote year experience for you in general. I mean, just for people that aren't familiar with that, this is basically a 12-month work travel program where working professionals can travel the world for a year and live in a different city each month of that year with a community of 50 or so people that all travel together. So the company remote year takes care of all your accommodations and airfare and access to co-working space and Wi-Fi and everything else and has community events planned for you. And you basically go with the same community for an entire year. So the remote year cohort that you went with was one month ahead of mine. That's right. <laughs> you were an Iki guy. I was in Libertatum and uh, we were sort of trailing you guys for the second half of the year. But it was cool because we did some uh, some joint interactions. So I met some people from your group and you met some people from my group. And then you ended up hanging out with our group for the entire month after yours finished in Buenos Aires, I think, staying on. That's that. That's actually right. Yeah. So so we had uh, so we had a blast. There was a lot of interaction there and stuff. But I wanted to ask you, I mean, how was the remote year experience for you in general in terms of, you know, the travel and the community experience and all that kind of stuff. And then also business-wise, I'm curious about how you developed mm -hmm. and built Chipper Cash while you were traveling the world. Yeah. So to set the context, right, I was a kid who had just graduated out of college and doing everything that I could to stay in the U.S. Um, when I told my parents about remote year, they're like, this is ridiculous. You better stay in the U.S. Like, why are you going to travel and leave after eight years of trying so hard to make it work in this country? And so, you know, it, it's a month in a different city. So we start off in Lisbon. And I remember that that flight going to Lisbon, I was literally, it was a one-way ticket, right? So I was just devastated. It just felt like my professional life was over. 
because what's going to happen after remote year? Now, I'm also with a Ghanaian passport, which means you have to apply for a visa essentially for every country. So there's so much uncertainty if I could even complete the program or do the program or how do I apply for a visa to Colombia, to, to Argentina, what happens in Europe when all these side trips are happening. And so just a constant state of uncertainty throughout. And I think that that's one of those grounding factors, which is in life, you have uncertainty no matter what. And people just don't know it, but you do have a ton of uncertainty. And and sometimes you just have to deal with it and be like present with that. And, and sort of like, just, you got to make it work. You have no choice. And so that was basically that beginning of Remoya where I just felt like I'm screwed. But as soon as the program started, as soon as you you meet all these, you know, 50 crazy people who have given up a lot to travel, a lot of them are, you know, working remotely, making things work, that sort of environment just like constantly fills you. It's literally a day-to-day-to-day interaction and it fills you on. And, and you know, a lot of people quit their jobs to start their own companies because this sort of life where you could travel and make things work, It's there's nothing like it, really. So that grounds you in a way that, Throughout the program, you know, I had always been thinking about my whole life, really, like, how can I do things, you know, for my home country, for my home continent? And one of the things that after you travel the world for a bit, you will notice what works in certain countries and what doesn't work, what's possible here is just a huge source of inspiration. And so, you know, in, with payments, really, in, in Germany, super heavy on cash, you cross the border up to Denmark, Norway, it's all cards, they don't accept cash. And, you know, even in Brazil and Colombia, just just had that treatment on like digital payments all over the world. You notice what's possible. And then, you know, you, you, you know that back home is just like super heavy on cash as well. But we haven't even tried to digitize a lot. I mean, mobile money is huge and it's gotten us to a certain point. But where we need to go in the next 10 years, you need something more modern, more foolproof. And you've had this inspiration to draw off while you're traveling. So that that was a huge part of remote. Yeah, I was still working on image, but I was, you know, basically moonlighting, that's what they call it, on the side. Um, and and building Chipra Cash, you know, just like an hour a day, right? Like this is what you have to do if you're doing something part-time. You just work on it 30 minutes a day. And that showing up every single day to work on what you want to work on part-time, you know, helps a lot. I I can remember this because I think I was on a train from Sofia, Bulgaria to Serbia. And there were these, you know, amazing rocks. It was basically a hill of rocks. Like they look like crystal shining rocks. And, and that was on my right side. And then I was amazed just looking at it. And the guy behind me, you know, he mentioned, you know what? It isn't the power of the waves, but it's the frequency day after day. These waves are hitting the rocks. And that's what causes such a beauty for miles and miles and miles on end. And that just, you know, it was like, that's it. It's just the 1%. Every single day, you got to just show up and make something 1% better. So that was how I was able to build Chipra Cash, really the core of it while traveling. It was like, okay, today I'm just going to comment on this code. Whatever it is, like every day I will touch this code base, even if I just wrote, you know, one line. And so that that adds up because that's a 1%. That's amazing. That's really important advice as well, I think, for aspiring entrepreneurs who have a full-time job in terms of how to do that and eventually how to transition. I want to start off before we talk about the next steps and, and the transition and the evolution of Chipper Cash from there. I want to ask you to sort of more clearly identify the problem that you are solving. For example, I came to Africa. I've been, I've been in Africa now for four months, right? 
I was in Cape Town for two months. I was in Lagos, Nigeria for a month. I've been in Accra for almost a month. I'm going to go on to Senegal and all that. So I'm spending a bunch of time in Africa this year. And one of the things uh, that I noticed pretty quickly is that when you need to send money to someone to pay for something, like, oh, do you take PayPal? Nope. (laughs) Nobody on the continent of Africa takes PayPal. You can't use these types of services here to send money. It is incredibly difficult to transfer money on this continent, right? And so I'm wondering if you can explain a little bit about, you know, that issue, how you identified the problem, and then how you went about architecting a solution for it. What is Chipper Cash? Right. So let's start with the problem. And and the problem is today, 2019, it's incredible, like you just described, to move money, you know, across the continent within Africa. So if I lived in Kenya, I'm trying to send money to Uganda, uh, you may, it's just, it's just incredible. If I'm trying to send it to Ghana, you, you just probably have no way. I mean, even literally Western Union will not let you send money out of Ghana. Which is kind of ridiculous why we don't have that pan-African system essentially transfer-wise for Africa. Um, internally within the country, you do have, you know, mobile money, which is, you know, it started with M-Pesa and it's been, you know, in, flown in all, all sorts of African countries. And so that helps with the inter-country movement, but it's mostly just P2P style payments. Um, but yeah, it, Africa is the most expensive country to send money to also to send money within. And so when you see what's possible in terms of, I mean, like in you know Sweden, the Swish, you as this Venmo, um, we send money to each other with no fees. It's, it's, you just assume that you link your bank account, you send money and you're done. Um, out here, even if you were sending like a dollar, you know, relative, you pay a fee of about 30 cents, right? Like this quote that is expensive to be poor is that if you're sending lower, you pay more in fees percentage wise which I think is absolutely ridiculous. And so what we're doing with, with Chipper Cash, a lot of it is, is is idea arbitrage in a way, which is we have a life that we used to, we take for granted in the US with PayPal, with Venmo, with Square Cash and all these services. Why don't we have that for Africa? There's no reasons why we shouldn't. In fact, I was listening to a podcast about the Venmo founders and, and they described how when they were building Venmo, they kept wondering, why hasn't this been done? They kept waiting, you know, someone's going to stop us. Two years later, they're still building. Someone's going to stop us. Nobody stopped them. And they just kept building this product. And, and you know, now that I'm learning more about this space, because I think, why has anyone done it? There's probably some regulatory reason why. But no, it's just that nobody's done it. And actually, maybe I'll sidetrack this to a conversation that I had one time with a guy at MIT, which is very relevant for where we are today. This is code when, you know, maybe climate change. This is such a hard problem to solve. And most people, at least here in Accra, would say, well, there's some smart kid at MIT trying to solve it. But then when you talk to an MIT kid, it's like, are people solving this problem? And the answer is no. Like, there's no one. If people are supposed to be solving this problem, there's no one solving it. So we're basically screwed. And because you're there, you feel that, okay, I can, like, someone has to solve it. So you pick it upon yourself to do it. I think there's that that we need on the continent where people I, people know problems here. And now I'm back home, like a lot of people complain. Things are broken, but it really is upon people to just get up and try and solve it when you see that problem and not expect someone on the other side or, you know, some white person to try and solve it. And then many of these are just small problems. So with, with Chipper Cash, it's, 
you know, I met my co-founders at, in Grinnell. We had worked together. We had an amazing working relationship. In fact, part of the original idea was on this road trip that I took with my co-founder, Ham. He's from Uganda. This was, you know, Route 1, California. So, like, it was a good road trip where we talked about these ideas. That was the initial inspiring, you know, point. To have someone on the east side, I'm on the west side. We all have, you know, our sense of communities. Let's band together and actually solve this problem of moving money, you know, within our countries. And so that kicked it off. Also, just having the right people around you who... This is a problem on our continent. Let's just solve it. We don't know what's going to happen. None of us have payments experiences. We don't work at a bank. We just we just build software. Like we just love building things that are useful. And and every day after day, we're learning something new. Things are breaking. Customers are like, why isn't this working? But because the payment infrastructure is like also really bad, um, you live and learn. And so, but then part of the one percent, right? You just got to make it better and you just got to keep going. Like you don't need to see the end. You just need to see the next step and you just keep going. And, and it's a slog. <laughs> it's, it's really a slog, especially in the continent, but you just keep going and you know that you're going to get there. That's really been that, at least so far with the Chipper Cash story, that's been the journey so far. That's amazing because that is a really gigantic problem that you guys are attempting to solve. I mean, the contribution and the solution that you're envisioning, offering, proposing, and now delivering is really, really substantive and significant. So can you talk about how Chipper Cash then evolved and then came to the point where you were able to launch and go live and then start raising investment capital? What was that process like? As I mentioned, though, we're, we were building this while I was traveling on remote year, completely on the side. So it initially started, I was the main developer on it. Initially, initially started as a web app that we could then just share the link out to people. And my co-founder had a partner in Uganda, a friend who run an aggregator service. And so we could then hook into that service and just proof of concept, see if this worked. And so one of the key things was getting a prototype that kind of worked, but it was extremely clunky. I was straight up like, this is horrible, but let's see if this works. And then um, this was actually back in probably January of 2018. And I shared it with a couple of friends and they were like, why would I use this? This this is not going to work. This like I don't even have a friend in Uganda to send money to. Now, this is my personal friend. So, of course, they may not have anyone in a foreign country. But, uh, you know, and same story from my co-founder side, which is he shared with people and it's like, no one's going to use this, which is it makes no sense because this is a fundamental human need to move money. We're just talking to the wrong people. And so... But then we kept showing it to people and then you just get this one, two people who, are, you know, they realize like, oh my God, I've been looking for this my whole life. I'm glad you guys are working on this. And and literally that one, two people start to fool all that. So, so that was, you know, it was downhill and then it sort of went uphill when you met the people who needed it. And then, so we had a prototype out there and then in, um, actually my co-founder quit his job at Facebook. And so he came to stay with me in San Francisco. I was still working part-time at Imager. And that kicked off a lot because now he's like, this is a huge problem. I've At this point, we had about 20 users um, and then he came full time on it. And that pushed the whole process forward because now that he could actually you know, reach out to investors, we started trying to raise money for about four months. Um, and at this point, I was working on native apps 
And then so we pushed it out there. And now when it goes from a website to an app, there's just something conceptual about those two that, oh, this is an app on my phone. Okay, this is more legit than a website. So that is actually what started getting people to to try it and use it, try some small transactions here and there, you know, try a little bit of the cross-border piece. And they're like, no fees, cross-border, this actually worked. And for many people, if you have a service, a new service that interfaces with a service that you already know, that just lit the fire. And then people started sharing with each other. And this was still 100% bootstrapped at this point. And so it's like, okay, this is growing. We're paying all these fees because we're covering the fees. There are fees. We're just covering it the exact same way Venmo and PayPal will cover the fees. Um, but we just, it was not sustainable to be bootstrapped at that point, um, which is, you know, personally, I would love to do a bootstrap company. But for the kind of product that we're trying to build, you really do need to have investors. And so that's when Ham, that's when Kofa and I started pitching a couple of investors. Uh, this was in September in, in, you know, in 2018. And then we just kept pitching. And a lot of it was just like, Africa is awesome. There's a lot of growth ahead, but we're not there yet. But I mean, we're doing this and we see these numbers going up. We hear the story. And the way people transfer money across the border right now is this system called Hawala Transfers, right? Where you tell someone, if you're in Kenya, you tell someone in Uganda, hey, you, I, I just need to send money to this person. If you send it over to that person, I here in Kenya will send it over to whoever you want. So it's completely off the books. No one really sees, it's very informal. No one knows these transfers that happen. The World Bank doesn't calculate it. And so if you have a company like PayPal or Venmo, you know, saying, hey, should we go into Africa? Let's do this data analysis. You crunched numbers. The numbers aren't really there because they're all informal, right? And so bottom line is like, it's not there. Let's just, it's not ready. But when you talk to the people, like how are you moving money? It's there. And so so that's that's kind of the bet that we're playing on, which is, we talk to people every day. We know what's happening on the ground and we have the tech and resources and connections. So let's just, you know, build this. And 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 so we started pitching investors and spreading that story that, you know, it's Africa's time. This decade, upcoming decade is going to be huge. And yes, even if we are early, it's going to happen. This is inevitable. So you, you better just basically get on. Um, and, and I mean, we see it in the product and, um, just to continue on with the investors, there's, you know, there's this thing called the African discount, which we didn't know about, but we started to see where even if you have an amazing product, because it's Africa, this doesn't matter whether you're black or white, because it's Africa, investors just automatically like slash your valuation. And it's like, well, they assume that everything's just cheap, which as you're aware of being here, not everything is cheap. Um, and so there's a lot of fight in that, you know, you know, discussions that we had to do to sort of raise that awareness that it's not that cheap. There are high margins in this industry. And that that was a battle, but we probably talked to maybe over 70 different investors. But at some point, what happened was that we got an introduction to someone at 500 Startups and that's how we then got to pitch this guy. And he was like, the program's already started, but I could see a promise here. Therefore, you know what? I'm going to let you start late. So we started from our startups like almost halfway through. Uh, it had already started. Can you say, just for people that don't know, what is 500 Startups? What do they do? And then how did you get involved with the program? And then how your experience was? Right, yeah. And so 500 Startups is a, it's an accelerator. They actually worldwide, they have, you know, accelerators in Thailand, Vietnam, and a, and a bunch of other countries. And so they had a program in San Francisco. And what they do is you apply, you get accepted. 
they give you about $150,000 for 7% of your company. And the whole purpose is you are here to grow. And so they have a lot of mentors, a ton of mentors. You have weekly calls, bi-weekly calls. And, and the purpose is to just, you know, grow the company and give you all the help that you need. Right. And so we were for our batch winter 2018, we were the only African startup at, in that batch. So those mentors that we had in there and the growth that we experienced, that was really when things started taking off uh, with Chipper Cash. And, you know, just having someone say, you know what, I could see something here. I'm going to let you join, even though it's late. That, that I, I remember that, you know, when he said that, I was like, no way, like this is actually happening. So that was when, you know, I, I finally had to let go at Imager. I mean, they had done so much for me, right? They brought me back to the U.S. basically. So that was also a bit hard. But at the same time, there's, there's just something ahead that I cannot not do. And so that kicked off the process. We got into 500. We started hiring. I want to take just one minute out to let you know that in addition to hosting The Maverick Show, I am also the co-founder of Maverick Investor Group, a real estate brokerage that helps you buy turnkey rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets from anywhere. So these are single family homes, sometimes two to four unit properties, and they're either brand new or fully renovated, and they already have tenants and local property management in place. So you get all the benefits of owning the deeded real estate, the physical house, the hard asset, without the headaches of being the landlord or the rehabber or needing to live near the property. So I want to offer you a free consultation if that sounds interesting to you. To learn more about it, you can just go to themaverickshow.com slash consult. And now, back to the episode. You know, a team on the ground and, and, and just, just went into build mode. And can you talk a little bit about, I mean, I want to ask you a number of business questions in terms of how you built and scaled, but just to stay with the investment pitching experience and when you went in to raise your seed round, can you talk about that experience? We mentioned in the introduction that your company, I think it was your co-founder, actually got to pitch Hall of Fame quarterback Joe Montana directly. And TechCrunch did a whole article about it and everything. But can you just share a little bit about that experience and, and you know, the whole process of raising and closing that seed round? Yeah. So it's one of those things that you don't know it's going to happen. And yes, we had gotten to 500 startups and we had some funding, but it was depleting like fallen rock, like I said, because we're covering the fees. So you see the the, the bank account just dwindling. And you, once you're on the VC track, it's it's all about raising money. Like, this is not about being bootstrapped. You, you have to just go big or go home. So your bank account's depleted, but you're supposed to raise money in about a month. And you know that if you don't do this in three weeks, you're done. Like, the, it's done. Like, you, you've got this growth, but people, investors, a lot of investors are like, we like what you're doing, but... Eh. <laughs> and so so that that was the atmosphere and the vibe that we were in. And I mean, we had not much sleep. Like I'm working on the core product. Ham, my co-founder, crazy trooper. I mean, this guy is driving, going everywhere and doing the pitchings. And, you know, I would come in on the second conversation because some of the first ones are just duds. It's just, oh, okay, well, let's just meet this guy. Let's meet what's happening. And so usually in the second conversations, um, 
you, I mean, you just, even the certain conversations, you just hear like, okay, we like what you're doing. Some people say yes, and then it's just trail along. Some, and you know, there's a whole East Coast versus West Coast investors where in the West Coast, if they don't like what you're doing, they just take their phones out. If they don't, don't they don't tell you no. Um, and they, if it's an East Coast investor who's flying in, he like dominates the conversation and just like asks questions. But when you pitch an investor, you should be the one like, dominate and, and, and you know saying this is what we're doing and obviously it's a conversation so get into the tail end of it it just felt like it wasn't going to happen and you're mentally thinking well maybe this is not going to work out because we actually do need to raise money yes we could try and slow things down but like we are growing so why is everyone saying no and so you do have that self-doubt because if this was amazing obviously everyone should be in it and what it took really after multiple notes was one investor, um, a lead investors ended up saying yes. And it was this like unbelievable, no way, like that's not happening. And you, you just, you know, they could say yes, but it's not really a yes unless the money's in the bank. And so you just praying that nothing goes wrong in the process. You're complete due diligence. He interviews, you know, Alan from Imager, like a bunch of people that I know and, and you know, on Hampside as well, doing their pretty solid due diligence. And we're hoping that nothing, you know, scares them off, quite frankly. But it ends up pulling through, it ends up working out. And it's almost like, you know, you're trying to swim in this water and finally you're above the surface and you can breathe. But you're still in this water and now you have to like swim to the shore. So, it, you know, it's like you're in the clear, but not really. It was a roller coaster of its own because this is part of that, you know, what I mentioned in the beginning, uncertainty. You just don't know what's going to happen, but you're just going to take it one day at a time. Like that, that core of what Ramulia taught me really is essentially what fundraising was like. Right. That's amazing. And so after you had those investors on board and you had Joe Montana's fund and you had other high profile investors from Silicon Valley on board as part of your seed round um, and you raised the 2.4 million at that point, what then was your business scaling process from there? What was the next step for you guys? So at that point, now that we know we've gone from zero to one, at least internally, we know that we're going to, you know, we have funds to push this forward. We have the story as well. That article kicked off a ton of, you know, people on the ground in Africa saying, you are one of those stories. Like, there are not that many African founded and, you know, being in the valley and also, you know, like I'm back home in, in Ghana and like just pushing this product on the ground and also being a face to the outside world. So you can feel the pressure. You know, we opened an office in Kenya. So Kenya is a home base in Nairobi because that is mobile money mecca for the continent. That's why M-Pesa started. Um, and we started to hire a team out there. Engineering is is pretty distributed. So all of our engineers are remote. And we started essentially because everyone at this point was working part-time, just like I was. So now that we actually have money, it's like everyone came on full-time and we started paying them like actual market salaries, um, which... I mean, these are people who are going to do it anyways because they believe in the mission. Like, we need this on, on the continent. And so it's like getting paid for them to do what they're already doing, which is great. And they're the most hardworking, loyal, like amazing engineers that I've ever worked with. And so they're all remote. We have an engineer out in Berlin, one in South Africa, one in New York, one in Ghana. And so 
part of now the fund is closed, it's we can actually now meet other cost part because everyone's full time and, and really, you know, see what's happening in the various countries. So we're essentially doing like a mini remote year, but for the team and, and having a role in headquarters, you know, within the country where we just travel out to Ghana, to Kenya, to Uganda, see what's happening with the product, because this is a global product. Everyone on the continent is going to use this at some point. At least that's our goal. And so you want to be connected. And so that's why it's important to travel and experience different cultures. And so we started to scale the engineering team and operations teams out because we are digital only service that also makes it easier. And that is part of the ethos being digital only because you can actually do this from anywhere. So our customer support helps, even though they are, they live in Kenya right now, they help all the customers everywhere else. And so can you just explain also the profit model for the business? Because you initially have mentioned here that you guys are covering the fees in order to be able to offer free service in order to be able to build your customer base and get people to use it. But obviously, to get the investment dollars, you gotta, you guys got to show a really viable profit model. So can you just sort of explain how that w- works or how it will work? Yeah, it's, it's, it's super simple. So for consumers, no fee. And so if you're sending money locally within the country, there's no fee. If you're sending money cross-border, there may be a, you know exchange rate fee in that transaction because it's multiple currencies. And then on the merchant side... That's where we'd have the fee. So it's essentially just like PayPal, where consumers no fee, but on the merchant integrations, if you're trying to accept payments for your website, there will be a tiny fee on that. Got it. And so let me just ask you this now from business perspective. As you are hiring your distributed team, how are you going about hiring the right people and building the right team? What are your hiring practices, what types of tips do you have for hiring based on your experience so far? Right. So I'll definitely preface that with saying at the stage of the company, so we're about 20 people right now, a lot of the hiring is internal. It's who do you know and who do you trust? This is all about money. And we have an open policy. So people have access to everything because we're early. And so a lot of it has been you know, who are internal connections. This is just classic for any, you know, early stage company, which is where we're at right now. What we do look for, however, is, you know, the ability to communicate in written form uh, because we do work remotely. Most of our communications are in Slack. That's what we use. So can we communicate with you in that way? I mean, I've seen some interview practices where given that we work remotely, can I chat with you on Slack rather than doing a phone call over Skype because our time is spent in Slack? Um, And so there's a lot of that within the engineering side. And just, you know, how much do you believe in this mission as well? Because at some point you're going to be doing overtime. I mean, this is a slog, right? Like just at some point it's not even about the money. So what is that belief that you have for, you know, interconnect in Africa? And that's another big one. I am a big believer of travel for that, you know, purely inspiration move. So if you are someone who cares about traveling, cares about a culture that isn't yours, that's also a huge one because you're seven people of different cultures, different, you know, different ways of thinking. Like some people ask the same questions in different ways. We use Intercom in the app. And so you're interacting with different people and, you know, different African, you know, countries. And so that also empathy is, is another huge one. Wow, that's really amazing. Um, how do you manage a distributed team and run your operations and coordinate 
you know, project management across different countries, different time zones, all that kind of stuff? How do you run a internationally distributed operation? That is a tough one. And I don't think we figured it out just yet. But when I'm in San Francisco, for example, purely on the time zone side, I mean, I would have calls at 2 a.m. sometimes, 6 a.m. because you have to make it work with, you know, the other part of the world. On the engineering side and product and engineering side, like I mentioned, it's a lot of it has to be in written form. And so, for example, in engineering, we have this process called spec driven development, where if you're going to work on something, you just first write this like more detailed spec in Google Docs. It's shared out with everyone. And so all the work is not done in silos. It's when it's done, it's posted in Slack and everyone gets to see it. If you're one person, right, this is all in your head, you don't really need to write this out. But when you're a group and as a team is scaling, we've noticed that even the, you know, operations folks needs to have know what's happening in engineering. If you're all in one single office, you just hear the conversations casually. So that's never a problem. But when you're remote, how can you recreate that? And so if we've built a process internally where the way we work by de facto standard makes everyone else be involved, even if it's just marginal on the side. And so a lot more is just written down and, and that helps in onboarding new hires because once you join on, you have a literally list of like, here's the history of work that's gone on and here's where we are today and you can catch up by yourself. I noticed this when I went remote from Imager. I was actually probably the second remote person at Imager at the time. And interestingly, because I was remote, I was looking out for any single documentation and there was a lot of it. But while I was on the ground, I never read it because I was right there. But when you're remote, you start looking out for things. And I feel like I learned more about the company being on the outside because you're just like digging in. And so we at, at Chipper Cash tried to, you know, we were remote first. And so everyone has this culture of writing things out. And, and that process is both for operations, engineering, across the board. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I agree entirely on running remote businesses in that way. Um, let me ask you this, just business vision wise, I mean, to the extent that you can share this stuff, do you have plans to do another round to do another investment raise? And as a company, have you guys thought specifically about an ideal exit strategy? Are you eventually ideally looking to get acquired and sell this to a larger uh, company of some kind? Are you looking to go public with the company down the road? Are the investors that are on board looking for a particular exit strategy? You know, what, what, are, what is sort of your vision there in terms of the future? To the extent that you're allowed to share any of that, feel free to answer that however you like. Right, yeah. So, I mean, I can definitely talk, especially on the personal side, which is because this hasn't been done before, what we want is to just make this happen. That's kind of the primary goal. I know it is right, you know, like just the standard thing to do to know where your exit is when you're entering into a business. But at a point, we're not really thinking about the exit so much as much as we're thinking about, can we just make this happen? But that's like step zero. I would say that we are, for what we do, um, you know, we do need to eventually raise more money or become profitable because like I mentioned, we are free and we are about to kick off chipper checkouts, which is where the merchants get on. And so there are plans eventually to potentially raise more money. And this is the standard across, you know, companies at our stage. So that's in the works. And in terms of long tail exit, I don't think that we want a long tail exit as much as we want to build a sustainable thing that's just here forever that ends up powering a lot of companies. 
and 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 that's really really the goal just to solve this payments infrastructure problem on the continent and there is not really yeah probably an IPO potentially but you know that's to the extent that I know right now awesome let me ask you this in terms of potential competition you alluded a little bit earlier to why companies like PayPal have not already done what you're doing. Now that companies like PayPal, which are obviously insanely well-resourced and capitalized, right, have seen what you're doing and they've seen or heard about your pitch and they've seen other investors coming on board and agreeing with you in terms of the market that you've identified and the model that you've built to serve it, is there a risk of those types of companies just deploying an insane amount of capital to replicate, try to replicate what you're doing and compete with you? How do you guys see the, the competition landscape moving forward? So that is a fascinating question that I think about quite a bit, which is why aren't other people seeing what we're seeing? And as I talk to more and more and more people, and I think I mentioned this before, if you look at the market from a data perspective, it's a black hole, right? <laughs> like not to be figurative, but there is not much. You know, then, you know, there's a recent Facebook Libra announcement, which is another, I think, exciting piece for, you know, trying to create a digital currency that transcends countries. And that's exciting. Now, if there were, I think this problem is so bad that if there were to be external companies coming in and deploying a ton of capital, I actually would be happy because now it really means that the pizza, the pie is getting bigger and bigger and bigger and you can pluck out your segment. I don't think we at Chipper Cash would be building a mobile wallet if there was an already existing mobile wallet that was cross-border and actually worked 100% of the time. It would probably focus on another different segment. But in just looking at the market, it's like, I can't even do this basic thing. And the services out there that supposedly do it don't work. Therefore, that's the baseline. And there's just so much work that needs to happen in the front that I'm not too concerned about it. And and here's the problem. I mean, there have been companies that try what we're doing. Many of them gone under. Many of them shut down. And, you know, some of the reasons are just the bad payments infrastructure. And, and that's really what we're trying to solve, which is this payments infrastructure problem. Because you need a ton of engineering resources as well as, you know, just the people, the connections, just knowing on the ground and knowing how to do business in Africa, which you just need that combination, really. And so if an external company was to come in and try and do it, I welcome them because we need to be in the, you know, this battle. The, the battle is against cash, right? It's not really against even the mobile money telcos. It's just really against like getting more and more people into just digital ecosystem. And, and that problem, it's for the next decade, is just going to get really tough. Can you talk about your vision for Chipper Cash, let's say 10 years from now? I mean, ideally speaking, you guys crush it. More investors come on board. You're able to build what you want to build. What is your ideal vision for 10 years from now? In 10 years, obviously, everyone's going to be using Chipper Cash. Everyone in Africa and the African diaspora. And I think right now the average cost to move money into the continent on average is about 9%. That's going to go down to like 2 3%. You know, there are some corridors today. I think it's Hong Kong to 
to the Philippines. Like there, there are some corridors where the cost is one percent, and part of that is just because there are competitors. I think you know, us rolling into this and and inviting more people to compete is going to roll the number down, which is just going to be better for the people. Um, and so we're going to have a cost-effective, super slick, super easy way to move money. So you're in San Francisco, you work as an engineer wherever, uh, you can move money home for the cheap, um, and we're not just losing money. You know, this is a product for everyone to to be able to have access to. And this is actually, I mean, this is 10 years. So I'm going to say we're here in Accra. There is a road that, you know, when I was young, I would would drive over up to church and my mom would, you know, buy us these ice cream packets. And every time we drove over this, this bridge and there's like a water lagoon beneath it. Now, I mean, quite frankly, it does not smell good. Right. And so every time we drove over, I would like hide my ice cream. Because I don't want the smell of this filthy place to enter the ice cream. And when I see pictures of Shanghai and the progress that happened in Shanghai, you see these before and after shots. It's like filthy dump and now looks like the skyscraper is this amazing, gorgeous place. You do know that it's not impossible for that to happen here. There's a lot of work, both on a people mentality level and just having tech that works to make it happen. But I do think, because I'm driving through, you know, Accra today, and it's like, look at these palm trees. I mean, look at the greenness. Look at all this stuff. This could be gorgeous, but it's just not there right now. There are multiple reasons why, of course, people and technology. Those are two different problems. But I think in 10 years, we can start to work towards a track where, you know, the Accra that you described at the beginning of this podcast becomes an even better version of it. And and, and Chipakash really at the bottom just helps to power a lot of fairness and equality amongst like everyone who lives here, not just in Accra, but in Nairobi, in Lagos, in, in, in Joburg, and in everywhere, basically, on the continent. That's so amazing. And then people that come here as tourists would be able to use it as well while they're on the continent spending time here to transfer money to whomever they need to? Absolutely. And so when we mentioned that we want to support the African diaspora, that does mean that it will be open to basically someone with a foreign bank, which would include a tourist. So yes. Yeah, that's awesome, man, because I need to start using this like immediately. <laughs> Get some Wakanda money. <laughs> exactly. Awesome. Major, let me, I want to ask you now a little bit about some of your personal productivity habits as an entrepreneur. Can you talk a little bit about how you are able to be productive? I think in general, but also while you're traveling and you're in these new amazing places and these super cool cities or beautiful beaches and you want to go explore and do stuff and all of that. How are you able to be as productive as you are as an entrepreneur? Do you have morning routines? Do you have a particular day structure that works for you? How, what, what are your productivity techniques? So I definitely have morning routines and it's really simple. You roll out of bed, fall to the ground and you do two push-ups. I, mine's just really simple. The point would be when you do two push-ups, you end up doing five and you end up doing 10 and you end up doing 50, but you got to do that too. And so I always just start with two. And if I'm done with the two, like, yo, I'm done with the two. I, I stop. So mentally I'm okay with it. There are days when I don't do those two push-ups, and I just like have a crap day. Like it's I'm just off because I never felt like 
I did something that morning. And that's as basic as it is for my morning routine. The goal, you know, the help is when I do travel, it doesn't matter where I am. I don't need a gym. I just need a floor. <laughs> um, and, and so it is everywhere that I go. And it's just, you know, again, 1%. Other than that, you know, this role is definitely stressful because things are breaking a lot. Um, because of the bad fundamental infrastructure um, and we are and so it, it gets really stressful but when I'm not working in the times where I just need to like just get away from everything and I just love to dance so it, this this is uh, while I was traveling on remote year I was out in uh, Buenos Aires and the bachata actually out there is really good and in Brazil, there's this dance called Brazilian Zouk, which is like relatively new. It's about five years old in the United States, started to make its way around the world. And that is probably one of my favorite partner dances. And and I could talk about how much dance is a huge stress reliever. You're not in your like left brain head about problems. You're in the moment for, you know, just three minutes with whoever you're dancing with. The music just fills your body you are working out, you are meditating, you are, you know, practicing something that you otherwise just wouldn't, you're not thinking about money at that point, you know, it's, it's just you and the person that you're with and dancing. And, and that's been pretty much the core thing in every culture, every, every country you go to has that. So I'm able to do that no matter what. Best Buddy, you know, you don't need to speak the local language. And so you meet people as well when you're dancing. So that is one of the things that, you know, being location independent, being that you can go anywhere, just like bonds you with the local community and it has all these extra pleasures. So Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I remember you and I actually did together a tango class in Buenos Aires, Argentina. That's right. That 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 was a good time. That I had never done tango. And so that that was also another experiment where and that's the thing about dancing where you feel like you're pushing yourself to try something that's hard. But then you feel rewarded at the end of it because like, oh, I actually got this move right. And and as basic as it is. You know, one of the dances, the partner dances that I've been watching, I haven't actually taken lessons or participated in yet here in West Africa is Kazumba. And I think you do Kazumba as well, right? Can you share a little bit about what that is for people that don't know and talk a little bit about it and what it means to you? Right. So Kizumba is actually known as the African tango, colloquially. It was founded in Angola, and then it made its way to Lisbon in Portugal, and then went through Europe, and then now slowly spread into the U.S. and um, South America. And it's typically a dance that you dance with your family, you know, typically, in, in, especially in Angola. And... Um, out in Europe and the U.S., it, it is a partner dance. So you are with, you know, girl and guy, lead and follow. And you are really close in that embrace. You have like literally six body parts of contact. Um, and and you all move in as one body together. And it's more about the togetherness and the earthiness of, of the dance. It's, it's just about we're here right now in this moment. That's what it is. And so when you're dancing like that with, you know, your mother or a close friend or, you know, someone you met on the dance floor, that that just being still and being you is, is really apparent in the dance and it just grounds you because of that earthiness of it. That's awesome. And I know, I know you and I also both have a shared love for Brazil and for the city of Sao Paulo in particular. I'm always talking about Brazil on this podcast. People know that I love it. Um, but can you talk a little bit about what your experience in Brazil and in Sao Paulo in particular was like and why you love that city so much? 
Yeah. I mean, so I went to Brazil because in Buenos Aires, I was told that in Brazil, there's this dance called Brazilian Zouk that I had never tried. And so I got an Airbnb, literally a block from the dance studio. And my whole thought was, I was going to work and dance. That's it. And the thing about Brazil is really is the people. So I got there at this class and literally everyone, well, those two people start to pull you and it's like, oh, you're from Ghana. Like, and, you know, and, and it's this welcoming, like, why don't you join us while we, you know, we go into this restaurant, um, meet my new friends, meet my sister. Right? And it was, she wasn't a sister. She was just another, you know, friend from Colombia. But that sort of family aspect of Brazil where you feel like you're one of them, even though you're obviously not. You have an instant family when you move out there. So I thought I was going to just spend a week in Sao Paulo and then spend a month because of the people and because of that welcoming atmosphere, welcoming vibe, and, and just learning a new dance that I never tried before. That combination was just spot on. I think other people have, you know, different perspectives on Sao Paulo. Mine was through a dance lens because that's literally all I did almost every night. And so I definitely want to go back and experience some of the other stuff, you know, like the graffiti, the art, you know, just other things about Brazil that wasn't danced, but that that was why I went. And so that grounded that experience. Yeah, it's so amazing. I didn't actually take any dance classes while I was in Brazil, although I'd lo- would love to go back and do that, exactly what you did. But the music and the dancing is so infused into the culture. I would just be wandering around by myself alone on a Saturday, and you just run into like street parties where DJs are playing, and people have just taken over an entire street, and there's just a massive block-long outdoor party going on. And it's just, I mean, this is Brazil, right? I mean, this isn't... Now, I've been to Rio for Carnival. I've lived in Rio for a couple months, right? But this is like not just during Carnival or not just during a festival. I mean, this is just a Saturday, you know? I mean, people in Brazil, it's just how they roll. It's just part of their culture. It's what they do. And so, like, my experience is very similar to what you described. Even though I've never taken any classes, I just walk around in the streets and I just see this stuff. I mean, it's amazing. Yeah, the street art and the food. And, I mean, I'm just, I'm always just so enamored when I go to Brazil. And the country is so enormous. I mean, just geographically speaking, it's so huge. <laughs> like, I feel like I've only seen, I've been to Brazil three times now. And I feel like I've only seen a tiny fraction of it, you know, and wherever you go in Brazil, it's very, very diverse geographical landscape, very different types of experiences that you could have. But each time I go there, I'm just like, oh, Brazil, (laughs) this is why now I remember why I like Brazil so much. I just get that. I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is amazing. So I I have the 10 year visa for Brazil. Yeah, I'm jealous. (laughs) I I got three months. Well, I can only be there, I think, for three months and then I have to be out for, you know, I have to be out after that, but then I can come back and it's a 10-year thing where I can be there, I think, 180 days out of the year. You're like 90 in, 90 out, 90 in, 90 out if I wanted to. And I feel like I, feel like I should be taking more advantage of that because Brazil is amazing. Awesome. So I would just want to ask you also about travel in general for you. Can you talk a little bit about why you travel, what you love about travel, what travel has meant to you? Yeah. And so I definitely did the bulk of traveling during that remote period where I was essentially waiting and figuring out ways to get back. I mean, if I could summarize remote year into one word, it's freedom. And really, that's why many people do a lot of things to be free. And the thing with travel and when you're, you know, a tourist in a different country, you can get away with so much. You know, it's like, 
I just didn't know. And therefore, you know, but like you could explore a lot. You you could go anywhere and, and, and you could essentially reinvent yourself on almost a weekly basis. That that process of like exploring who you are as a person is the core of it. Because when you go out to a foreign country and you have a new experience that's never happened, you know, you were describing what happened out, you know, when you were in Lagos, it's just a new experience. You're like, I don't know what to do, you know, and, and you just have to figure it out. It's it's like, I don't swim, but it's kind of like you're just thrown in a swimming pool and it's just like figure it out and you have to happen over and over and over and over again. So there's a lot of personal development that happens, you know, in, in these new things you experience. And for me, it's it's a combination of that and the freedom to be able to just do it, right? I'd been living in San Francisco for, you know, the past six months and you're working on cheaper cash, but definitely that routine sort of sets in on a physical level where it's like I am doing the same physical things. But yeah, they, there are the stresses of it. But for travel, it's it's just constant inspiration constant exploration constant questioning of who are you right now who are you going to be next week who could you be um that you are and you're not even thinking about it but it's happening to you that's why i think everyone at some point needs to go through that kind of experience and and constantly actually go through it because it just makes you naturally you know question a lot I agree with that entirely. And I I find myself in those situations all the time. And a lot of times that's the point, right? Is to catapult yourself into uncomfortable, unfamiliar situations where you may not even speak the language or be able to, you know, I mean, everything is different and then you're, you know, you need to figure things out. And sometimes intentionally putting yourself into situations where you're uncomfortable and you don't know how to do the stuff that there is to do <laughs> is sort of the point, right? Uh-huh. No, yeah. Like the your environment controls a lot. And so if you're able to change your environment, you know, in a controlled fashion, of course, by change the country, you just naturally, no matter what, you would learn a lot about yourself. And and you just learn so much about the different cultures. I mean, we were talking about Brazil and even just, you know, coming here to Accra in Ghana. And for me, I mean, it's just been amazing just to see and just to be so inspired and enamored. And I mean, at the same time that you might put yourself into a situation where there's discomfort or, you know, you're not, you don't know how to do this and you have to figure things out and you feel like a child, you know, <laughs> at the same time there's that, but at the same time there's also you know, feeling just so enamored and just like inspired by what you're seeing, what you're experiencing around you and the music and the people and the, you know, the, the, the landscape and the scenery is just, is different. And it's just so inspiring and amazing and just the privilege to experience that and to learn about that and to learn about different cultures and different histories and all that kind of stuff in person on the ground in a place is just also Amazing. So I, I feel like that whole combination together is just such an enriching and amazing thing. That for sure. Um, and that's actually why I ended up, I ended up doing dance because I was in Colombia and salsa is, I mean, you cannot walk one block in Colombia without hearing the music. It's almost, I did not speak Spanish at the time. So if you wanted to meet a local, it kind of was through dancing. Um, and, and that began that dance journey for me. Um, and this idea of experiencing a culture that's not yours, but in an you know intimate, deeper level, that's the only way. You just got to go there. Right. And that's one of the reasons, too, why I try to stay places for at least a month or so, so that you can really feel like you live there. 
And then you have your regular, you know, people that know you at your regular coffee shop and you're, you know, shopping at the grocery store and doing normal local things. And you're actually living in a place. You're not just rolling through and staying in a tourist hotel and zipping around and taking selfies in front of statues and museums. Right. I mean, you're actually, you're actually living in a place and you're, you're finding your favorite, you know, night spots and your favorite restaurants and your favorite coffee shops and people get to know you. They know you by your name. Yeah. They're like yelling, Hey man, come on in. Yeah. And and you you just have your mini society and you get that taste of what it's like to be there. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's a number of places in Accra right now that I could walk into and everybody's going to be super excited to see me because they know (laughs) me because I go there all the time. Right. So, so creating those kind of experiences locally is just, uh, is just totally amazing. So awesome. All right, Majin, at this point, are you ready for the lightning round? The lightning round. All right. <laughs> Let's do it, man. Take a sip of that wine and uh, we'll get it rolling. The lightning round. All right. What is one book that has influenced you over the years that you would most recommend to people? I think it's a classic. Read it as 10 years, 10 year old, How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. That's a good one. What is one app or productivity tool that you're currently using that you would recommend to people? Whoa. So, I mean, I use Trello, both for personal and professional. There's an adrenaline rush from moving things from the left to the right. And it's just like, I literally write things I've already done. Like, I did two push-ups, move it to the right. And just the progress pushes you. Awesome. What is one podcast you listen to or blog that you read or YouTube channel that you consume that regularly that you would recommend people check out? I really love the Jordan Harbinger show. I actually met Jordan Harbinger as well. um, And he's a great guy. And, you know, I think after college, that was one of those frequent podcasts that I had and just you know, hearing his opinions and about things and the people that guess he has on the show. It, especially for just, you know, as a man, it, it was one of those shows that grounded you in a way. So that is, is very versatile about almost anything. Cool. All right. If you could have dinner with any person that's currently living today that you've never met, could be celebrity, author, public figure, business founder, athlete, you know, movie star, anybody in the world currently living today, you and that person for an extended dinner one-on-one conversation, who would you pick and why? I would pick Satoshi Nakamoto. He's a a parent person who founded Bitcoin. I want to know why he did that or she or they. I know they're an entity. That would be the one person. So you have to figure out exactly who it is first and then have the dinner. That's amazing. That's a good pick. That's a good pick because the question, right, is, you know, allows you to choose fairly unaccessible people, right? Right, So that's a pretty good answer, right? (laughs) Because you want to think about, "Mm, who would I really not be able to get access to? And then you pick them for the answer of the question. So that's a really good answer. All right. Last two are travel questions. What are the top three travel destinations that you've been to that you would most recommend people check out? Top three. Top three. Okay. Number one, Colombia. We're in Medellin. I don't know if I'd say why, but it's just huge growth moments on, on multiple fronts. Number two, I would pick Sweden. And, and that may be just because of who I am, where I'm from, and the diversity that I you know, experience when I was there. And number three, just split Croatia. 
I'm a I'm a water person. Even though I don't swim, I just love to be by the beach and just be there. And so those will be my top three. Awesome. All right, last question. What are your top three bucket list destinations? So places that you've never been before that are the highest on your list right now you would most love to see? Number one would be Japan. I've never been to Asia. And I think the Japanese culture is different from what I've ever seen. Number two would be India. There's a lot of stuff that happens in Africa. And this is also in Asia. I want to see those similarities, you know, also even just on a product level, right? Um, Paytm is huge over there. Interestingly, number three is China, but it's also a similar reason. And I mean, like, these are all Asia because I've never been out to Asia, but the Chinese culture in the African culture are very similar. It's almost like default no trust, um, but yet they've grown and expanded immensely. How do they do that? How can we replicate that over here? You know, want to just see it and feel it and like imbibe that and then hopefully bring it back. Awesome. Majid, it was so great having you on the show, my man. I want you to let people know, first of all, how they can learn more about Chipper Cash and how they can definitely use Chipper Cash if they're coming to the continent of Africa to visit as a tourist or if they want to send money to Africa or between African countries or any of that kind of stuff. How do they learn more about and use Chipper Cash? And then also, how do they follow you personally on social media or connect with you and learn about what you're up to? Yeah, you can download Chipper Cash straight from the App Store. It is free. Uh, C-H-I-P-P-E-R space cash. You could also check out our website at chippercash.com. And I mean, I am on Twitter at, at Dr. Jid, D-R-J-I-D. And you could reach out to me, shoot me an email is my first name at chippercash.com. Uh, just mention that you were listening to the Maverick show. I would love to talk to you, speak to you on Skype, just, just have a conversation with you. And so just hit me up. Awesome. We are going to put all of that contact information in the show notes. So we're going to link everything up at themaverickshow.com. So you can just go to one place, go to the show notes for this episode, and we're going to have all of the links to everything we've mentioned on this show, as well as all of Majid's contact information there. Majid, thank you so much for being on the show, my man. This was a blast. Matt, this was a huge pleasure. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed this. All right. Good night, everybody. Be sure to visit the show notes page at themaverickshow.com for direct links to all the books, people, and resources mentioned in this episode. You'll find all that and much more at themaverickshow.com. Would you like to get Maverick Investor Group's white paper on real estate investing for digital nomads? How to buy U.S. rental properties from anywhere in the world and finance an epic international lifestyle? Just go to themaverickshow.com slash nomad. The report is totally free and available for you now at themaverickshow.com forward slash nomad. If you like podcasts, you will love audiobooks and you can get your first one for free at themaverickshow.com slash audiobook. Whether you want the latest best-selling novels or books on investing, business, or travel, try your first audiobook for free at themaverickshow.com forward slash audiobook.